All right, with that said, uh, we are going to be turning to the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth chapter 3. We have Bibles in the pews. We have the scripture on the screen. You can go to your Bible app, or if you have an old-fashioned paper Bible, <laughs> which, um, you know, I, there's nothing like it, right? Like, I, I do a lot of my devotions and stuff on my phone, but when I really want to study, when I really want to get into God's Word, I need paper in my hand. Um, that said, we have several opportunities for you to check out the scripture this morning. Um, if you are new, new here today, or you haven't... Uh, haven't come for a while. One thing I'll let you know that um, I preach God's word. I don't preach my own opinions. I don't come up with some ideas. I want to share with you deep thoughts from Pastor Jason. So you want your Bibles open and you want them to Ruth chapter three. I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture this morning and then, uh, and then preach from it. Would you please rise as I read God's word today? Ruth chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? If um, is not Boaz our relative, with whom, with whose young women you were? See, he um, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down um, at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and, laid, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he, if he redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for, for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Father, bless your word to us today. Open up our hearts, open up our minds. Let us not simply be hearers of your word, but be doers of your word. 
Lord God, may this dwell in us richly. Bring forth, Lord God, a blessing pressed down, shaken together, flowing over. Do this for your own glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine with me today, you are just on the cusp of adulthood. Around, you know, 14, 15 years old, and you are living in what we call the exile. And your family has come back to Jerusalem because you were part of the tribe of Judah with several other families. You've been working hard to make the temple, to make the gates of the city. And all of a sudden, a priest comes from Persia who knows the law of God. And he starts telling you what you only heard about in stories, about in Genesis. He starts, he starts with the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Genesis, you hear how you were a people at one point in time, of Abraham who left Ur of the Chaldeans. And God, God promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, of, of his son Isaac, of Jacob of all of these different stories. And then you get through the Pentateuch and he starts because he's also a historian. Speaking of Ezra, he starts telling you about the history that you were a kingdom. But before he gets to a kingdom, he talks about a time called the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, just awful things happened because people did what was right in their own eyes. And after you get to the end of the judges, you have this horrendous story of one of the tribes of Israel almost being completely wiped out. And it's like, and then he starts telling you about a story, a love story. And once again, you are almost at the cusp of adulthood. So you start noticing the opposite sex more and more. So maybe this story interests you a little bit about a man and a woman, about a Moabite. And that's an interesting thing, right? Because in the book of Ezra, People who had married Moabites were told to divorce their, their wives. But for some reason, this is different. That there was this family who lived in Bethlehem, the city of David, of the great king of Israel. And they had went from Bethlehem to the land of the Moabites. And then they had taken Moabite wives for his sons. And the man who had gone over there, Abimelech, he had died. And his sons died. And now... His wife comes back, and not alone, but with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. And you're kind of like at the edge of your seat. You're like, what's going to happen here? And you get, to, you get to the second part of the story. Maybe this story was read in a whole day. Maybe it was in four sections like we do for, for us. And you get to the first part. You, you get to the second part, and she meets this man named Boaz, and he's one of the redeemers. Like, this is going to have a happy ending. And then you get to the third part, the part I just read for you today. And I don't know how your reaction was today, but every time I read chapter three, I'm like, what now? That's, that's not how it's supposed to go. It's like, it's like Fred Savage character in uh, The Princess Bride. And he's like, Grandpa, you're telling the story wrong. No, they're supposed to get together. I mean, like in Beauty and the Beast, after the beast becomes human, he's not like, hey, I've got a cousin who was a warthog who's now a person, and Belle, you're going to have to talk to him first. That's not how the story goes. But that is how the story goes because it's not a fable. It's not a fairy story. It is real life. It is 
one of the greatest love stories that has ever been told because this love story has more than just simply puppy love. It has responsibility and it has, the, it has its loves in the proper order. It is not a people who will treat other people badly so they get what they want, but a people who prize the love for God and integrity at the highest level so that they can be freed up to love one another genuinely. You know something? There are so many things that are good and proper in your life, but if you have them at the wrong time, they become a curse. Our first mother and our first father, Adam and Eve, realized this. You know, when you think about the most dangerous weapon, the most heinous killing device in all of human history. What do you think of? Maybe the Gatling gun. Um, the guy who made it, a guy named Gatling, his idea was that if you could create a machine that does the work of 10 soldiers, you don't need the 10 soldiers, so there'll be less killing on the battlefield. And of course, I mean, I, I can't believe he really thought that. I mean, obviously people are thinking, or we could have more killing by adding more people. Um, not even close. What about the hydrogen bomb? We know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Not even remotely close. Hydrogen bombs that could destroy the whole world. Not close because you know what? The most dangerous weapon of death in the history of humanity, it was fruit from the knowledge of good and evil. It was wanting to be like God without fellowship with God. Just his stuff without him. That is how death entered the world. I posit to you today that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit from the knowledge of good and evil, was not evil in and of itself. It just wasn't the right time to have it. And it wasn't the right heart to have it. After all, what are we told if we lack wisdom? To ask, and he gives it to us generously. Knowledge and wisdom are blessings, but when you take it in the wrong order and with the wrong heart, it becomes a curse. This is retold in one of the C.S. Lewis's books, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If not, get Disney Plus and watch it today. It's awesome. Um, or read the book. Better yet, read the book. Um, the, the Magician's Nephew is a, is a prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it talks about the creation of Narnia. At the creation of Narnia, the world is bursting with life. And the eponymous nephew of the magician, his mother is deathly, deathly ill. And his aunt tells him that all she needs is a fruit from the, from the land of youth, which is an old saying that we don't use anymore. So he figures this is the land of youth because it's a new world. And there is fruit there that would heal his mother. In order to get to the fruit, there were certain rules. You had to enter through the narrow gate and you had to be given the fruit. You couldn't steal it. And he was very tempted just to put out his hand, grab the fruit. It was delicious to the eye and, good and, pleasing, to the, and pleasing to the senses. And he could have taken it, brought it to his mom, and she would have lived. But he doesn't do it because he knows that would be wrong. It would be in the wrong order. Aslan, the Christ figure in Chronicles of Narnia, sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't read or watched it, tells him if he would have done that, his mother would have lived, but at a great, ter a great and terrible cost. And there would come a point in time where they both would have agreed that it would have been better for her to die. If Ruth was written like a typical love story, the boy would meet girl, there would be some misunderstanding, and then they would get over it, and they would get together and roll the credits. Chapter 3 ends in ambiguity. Man loves woman, woman loves man, but neither will allow their self-interest to make them into something they are, they are not. They will not wrong another because of what they personally want. 
It's very much, and, and this morning I'm going to be referring to many different stories in the scriptures. The scripture is replete with love stories that I want to compare and contrast Ruth and Boaz with. One such person is Joseph. Joseph, um, the son of Jacob, who would later be called Israel. He was given a coat of many colors that his brothers took from him, ripped apart and poured blood on to show their father that he, that he had supposedly died. So Joseph is sold into slavery. He is sold to a man named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife has her eye on him. And she wants, she wants from him, she wants from him what he can only give away, his own integrity. To sin with her would be a sin against his God and against his master, so he refuses at a great cost. Because while his brothers could take the physical coat of many colors, the spiritual coat of many colors that his father God gave him could only be given away. Today's sermon title is, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. There are so many, some of you are laughing. Yep, that, that is a reference to the Meat Love song, even though I'm not going to be talking about it much more than that. There are so many love stories, not just in the wider culture, but in the scripture as well. David and Bathsheba, Jacob and Rachel, Samson and Delilah. You have people who have gone to extreme lengths in the name of love. You have people who trample on others as well in the name of love to justify. They believe that the ends justify the means, but you cannot get a godly result using ungodly means. The name of the sermon, yes, does have a connection to the meatloaf song. He died this last week, but really it's what chapter three screams. For us, the reader, we're thinking, why don't, Boaz, why don't you just go ahead, just elope? It'd be so romantic. And what does that matter? That, that other guy already knew that there was needing for a redeemer and he hasn't done anything. The whole town's abuzz with the news. He hasn't done anything, but they will not use other people like ladders to climb on to get what they want. What chapter three screams is that the fruit of the spirit and the description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 are not inconveniences to be abandoned once they get in the way. Jesus said, if anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. I mean, I thought it was about family values. What's going on here, Jesus? That's a powerful statement, right? That your highest, greatest love should be Christ. In fact, in Luke, he'll say, unless you hate your father and mother, your children, your spouse, you're not worthy to be my disciple. In other words, your love for Christ should be so high that all other love should, be, should seem small. Pastor Tim Keller said, the functional cause of our discontent is that our loves are out of order. People make movies about this all the time, right? But Except they don't understand the greatest love of all. They think of like somebody, a workaholic who neglects their family and ends up losing other things. But really, if Christ is not our chief love, we have a tainted love. We see in the story of so many others that not loving God more, more than all others actually taints the love they have for others. We start to expect out of them what we need from God. You want to destroy a relationship, expect out of that person, whether that's your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, parents, children, expect out of them what you, what you need from God and you will crush them under that expectation. 
If you, if you come into your relationship or, it's your, or with your spouse and you're like, I need them to complete me. There's a, a reference that I'm sure very few people will get. That was a very doughy eye thing. You complete me. Only Christ can complete you. And if you expect them to complete you, you'll become so angry every time they fail. At what? Being God? Of course they can't do that. Of course they can't do that. We start to expect out of them what we need from God and we crush that person or that thing under the unmet expectation. It turns the loving husband into a jealous knave, the tender wife into a harpy, the wise father into a cold-blooded tyrant, and the caring mother into the witch who devours the children she is feeding candy to. Loving Jesus more than all of these frees us to love each other better and truer and puts things in its proper place so that we can actually bring something to the friendship, relationship, or whatever it is. You know, this can even be something that's not even a person. It could be a job. Some of us are our hearts into our job. We identify ourselves as our job. This is hard for me because sometimes I see myself, I'm a pastor first and a human being second, and that's wrong. I need to see myself as a child of the Most High first. Because if I'm a pastor first, then I take it awfully personally if somebody leaves the church. And I might be tempted to do something terrible and mean to them because it's hurt my pride and to try to tie that in with the Lord. And, it's, it, and that's where spiritual abuse starts. We need to see our highest love, our truest love is the Lord. That is what chapter 3 screams. It's like we're asking ourselves, Boaz and Ruth, why, why are you doing this? Because it's not all about them. Look at the story of Leah and Jacob. Let me refresh your mind real quick on this. Jacob sells himself into slavery for seven years to get a wife. And then when the night comes, he finds out it's not her, it's her sister. Yep, that, a bit of a surprise. He drinks himself drunk that night. They lie together. And in the morning, he's like, why didn't you say anything? But in this story, while it happens in the middle of the night, there is no trickery, there is no deceit on any of the parties. Ruth and Boaz's story, yes, includes love, joy, and peace, but it also includes patience, something Jacob did not have. He sells himself into slavery because he can't wait. There's kindness, there's goodness, there's gentleness and self-control. There is the fruit of the Spirit. So in the, in the question, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Everyone asks, what is the that? Well, I don't know about the song, but I know for Ruth and Boaz, it's one, doubt, two, deceive, and three, deal falsely. Verses one through six, I have this, that they would do anything for love, but they won't doubt. Hebrews 11.1 1 contains the best definition of faith, full stop. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we do not see. Thomas, known as Tom, Thomas the Doubter, when he, was heard, when he heard that the Lord Jesus was resurrected, he said, I won't believe it unless I put my hands in the holes of his hands and the hole in his side. I think we all have a friend who takes things way too far. That was Thomas. And then Jesus, you know, he shows up and he's like, how about it? And then Thomas says, my Lord, my God. He said, and then Jesus responds back to him, blessed are you for you believe because you have seen, but more blessed are those who believe who have not seen. It is hard. It is hard when we do not know the end result of something. It's easier and we kind of have more confidence when we can pray, God, 
do this when we know that, you know, chances are it'll happen. It's another thing when we're in a situation where we're like, without you, God, without you intervene, what's going to happen? I don't try to use this story too much, but I, I, I do honestly, I think of uh, Phil Biddle um, was supposed to die this last year. And uh, praying for him, and I, I, I've shared this story, I'm driving on the way home, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I need to, I, get, I need to get my stuff ready to make do a funeral as soon as I get back to the church, and the Holy Spirit's like, don't. And I'm like, fine, then you better help me because I don't want to be flat-footed here. And I'm like, fine, I'll, I'll pray. And, and I pray, believe, and, and God restored, restored Phil. It was, it, was, it was an incredible blessing. That is faith in the dark. There's a saying, don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. In verse 1, we have, now Naomi had a relative of her husband, wait, sorry, um, of chapter 3. Now Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may, that it may be well with you? That's a very nice way of saying, I need to find you a husband. Um, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Filler on the Roof, The Matchmaker. You know, it's funny, um, it's hard, as I get older, I find it harder not to try to be the matchmaker for singles that I know. In fact, I'm not even going to say who it was, but I, there, there was somebody and I was like, hey, have they met so-and-so yet? Because I was like, they'd be a good match. And I'm like, that's really nosy, Jason. You got to not do that. Anyway. <laughs> Um, Naomi's like, it's good. It's right proper for me um, to find you a husband. Verse two, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? I mean, you can imagine her just kind of like, see, he is winnowing the barley tonight at the threshing floor. Um, Why, how did Naomi know where he was going to be? Well, first I want to point out, you know, the scripture itself, the narrator of the book of Ruth calls Ruth Naomi's um, daughter-in-law. But what does Naomi call Ruth? Daughter. Some of you are already getting this, right? That when we come to God, he's not like, hey, my adopted son, hey, my adopted daughter. He calls you daughter, he calls you son. Naomi, though she was like every other person, a sinful human being, if she has such tenderness towards her daughter-in-law, how much more tenderness does our Heavenly Father have towards us who has adopted us into his family? Just a nice little bit on the side there. Naomi knows where Boaz is going to be, and it makes perfect sense. Uh, When Naomi is figuring out how to get Ruth and Boaz together, she knows where Boaz will be. It has to do with how the harvest was brought in during that time. If you were here last week, if not, during this time is what the Jews call, even to this day, Shavuot, Shavuot, what we call Pentecost. It is also the Feast of Weeks. It's the celebration of the harvest. And it was a celebration. It was a major festival. You bring in the harvest, and the way that they would, um, the, the steps of it, you would reap the stalks, you would take the kernels off the stalks, and then you would thresh the wheat or the barley. And what that meant is you would fling it up into the air, the chaff would, would blow away, the heavier kernels would fall down, and you would bring in the harvest. And that was the last bit. And it was a time of celebration. So basically, I'm trying to think of a way of wording this where it's not, not acronistic, but it's like a party and work. Um, in fact, uh, you'll see here that they, they slept by, um, Boaz sleeps by the heap of grain. Now, there was a reason that Boaz was doing that. It wasn't just because it was this partying and everything like that, but it was also to protect the grain. 
This is the time of the judges. You read through judges, you'll hear about raiders during the time of the harvest. It'd be during this time because the raiders are lazy and they didn't want to do the winnowing themselves. So they would have to sleep by these heaps of grain to keep them, to protect them. I was reading different commentaries and all the commentaries are like, we don't understand why Boaz being a rich landlord would be one of the people sleeping by the grain. And I'm like, I know why, because even though he was probably useless in a fight, he wasn't going to have his men do something and take a risk he wasn't willing to do because he was a man of good character. He was a worthy man. Yesterday, we talked about leadership and good leadership, bad leadership amongst our men's group. And one of the things that kept coming up was a leader is in the middle of what he leads. He won't have somebody do something he's not willing to do. And I, 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 was, I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, you're right. Why is he there? He's probably useless in a fight. I mean, he's like the landlord. So all the hired men are going to be like, get behind us. We don't get paid if you die. Um, so, but he will, not ta- he will not let them take a risk he's not willing to take himself. Verse 5 and 6 shows us what faith looks like. Verse 5. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Every time in the scripture where it mentions somebody actually doing something, I like to point it out because a lot gets, you know, well done is better than well said. And in the end, more gets said than done. There's a lot of people who talk a very good game, but the very few people who are there on game day. So I always like to point out that they actually did what was asked of them. Naomi hatches this plan it's not out of deceit, but it's going to be straightforward. There's going to be a lot of risk to, to Ruth in this. Remind you, it is the time of the judges. Bad things happen to women who are unaccompanied around a lot of single men. So she wants, Naomi's idea was, Ruth, I want you to get out of your mourning clothes. So she was wearing clothes that was telling everybody she was still in her time of mourning for her past husband. Put on some nice clothes, get all gussied up. And then go over there, kind of stay to the shadows and figure out where Boaz is sleeping. Then in the middle of the night, when it's dark, go over to him, uncover his feet and lay there until he wakes up. I hope you understand how dangerous this is for, for Ruth. And Naomi has a lot of trust. She has an incredible amount of trust in Boaz's character because there's an incredible opportunity for Boaz to take, take advantage of Ruth. And I do like how, how Naomi's like, Make sure you know where Boaz is at, because at, at the very best case scenario, it's going to be awkward if it's not Boaz. And Ruth doesn't complain. She does not have an alternate idea. She trusts Naomi, knows what she's talking about. She honors her elder, and she actually does it. If you want an example of people who doubt in the name of love, let's look at Abraham and Sarah. Now, they were people of faith, absolutely, but there was a portion in their life where they decided not to walk by faith, but to walk by sight. You probably know what I'm talking about when it came to having a child. They had their hearts set on a child. When we talk about love, we're not just talking about in a Ruth Boaz sense, we're talking about all kinds of loves. They had their hearts set on a child, and they were promised by God that their descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so they figured, well, how is God going to do this? We're of such an advanced age. Sarah was barren for so many years. So what are they going to do? Well, we need to help God out. 
yeah, yikes. They have probably one of the worst plans ever where they decide, hey, I've got this maidservant. Why don't you sleep with her? And then we'll, we'll pretend that the child that comes from this is ours. It doesn't work like that. And as one pastor told me, uh, said one time that, and that's why gas is always going to be over $2 a gallon um, from, their, from their grand idea. They, didn't, they wanted to believe by sight instead of by faith. And so when the angel came and told them, of course, Sarah laughs. Of course, they hatched this plan because the one thing that they were, that they, they, they did not have a that. They would do anything for the love of, an, of a, a child in the future, except truly love that child the way that God wanted them to. Of course, they do later on. Of course, we know the rest of the story and I'm not putting them down, but that's an example of not having a, a that, that you will do anything for love but you won't doubt. Second, verses 7 through 10, deceive. Deceiving love. Verses 7 through 10 contain um, in them a great opportunity for all parties to deceive someone else. But love does not insist on its own way. There are so many stories in the Bible and many other places where people in the name of love deceive one another. Verses 7 through 10 And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down. By the way, that does not necessarily mean he was drunk. In fact, we know he's not drunk because he has his full faculties when he wakes up. Um, it just means he, he drank to merriment, not into drunkenness. He went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man uh, was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. This has a different... The story of, of Ruth and Boaz has a, different, has a different story to it than a lot of other love stories, even outside of the scripture. Probably the most well-known love story in antiquity, meaning during the Bible times, before the Bible times, is probably the love story between Helen and Paris of Troy. Um, I'm excited if you don't know this story, but you probably do. Um, for their love... Nations go to war, and the nation, city-state of Troy is completely destroyed. And the city-state of Troy was an actual city. We don't know how much was true and how much is fabricated. Obviously, a great amount of it's fabricated from the Iliad and the Odyssey. But an entire kingdom is destroyed for their tainted love. Ruth and Boaz are unwilling to deceive one another or others. This is a straightforward request. Naomi's instructions may seem weird or inappropriate, but at that time it wasn't. It was... It was the greatest length Ruth could go to to show, to show Boaz that she was interested in him. She doesn't take advantage of the sleeping Boaz, then try to guilt him into marrying her. This, while, while what she does is extreme, it is according to propriety. She's not trying to use any feminine wiles to entrap Boaz. You might find it interesting, the, the part about being at his feet. Her uncovering Boaz's feet is an interesting bit. One thing I try, I keep trying to um, brace myself with the Bible. I think feet are disgusting, and the Bible talks about feet a lot. So I'm like, okay, I get it. Let's let's move on. Um, this is an act of humility. 
to be at someone's feet. We use the term even today, um, being at the Lord's feet or bringing our request to Jesus's feet. Lord, we bring this request for healing to the feet of Jesus. Uncovering his feet, then laying down by them, was showing that she was coming to him humbly, not as a victim. And that's important. She wasn't trying to prey upon his sympathies. There's so many levels of manipulation that she could have enacted, but she decides not to. Naomi does not instruct her to. She doesn't come begging for favors from Boaz or try to trick him into making a commitment he doesn't want to do. She comes, though, humbly at his feet. The feet were seen as as the lowest part of the person because, well, they are. They were dirty because they were on they were in the dirt all day long. You wore sandals. You didn't have proper shoes like we would have today. It's this act of humility. One thing I want to say before I go on is sometimes we read our thoughts into the scripture. Um, I don't want to go into this because it's it's really messed up the way some people interpret scriptures. There's a euphemism when it comes to feet in scriptures that is uh, it's it's inappropriate and it's not what this is talking about. In fact. Um, there are people who will use that to say that there was a sexual liaison between Boaz and Ruth that night. The scripture does not hint at that. In fact, those who read the scripture back then when they translated into Greek, they took out the word, the wording for lay down because they didn't want anybody mistakenly thinking that they had sex that night. Want to quickly go over that. Um, it's something that would come up. I'm like, you know, the scripture does not hint at that. In fact, Boaz protects protects her integrity afterwards as well. And the scripture's not, the scripture's not um, hesitant in talking about if there was. There's many other places, people much more important than these two, and with, that did something wrong. And the scripture tells us in, in, in stark detail exactly what happened. Not so here, and that would lead to a proper interpretation that nothing torrid happened. Also talking about nothing torrid happened is that Boaz is not drunk. He, it says that Boaz had eaten and drunk until he was merry. Don't read that as he was drunk and passed out. He wasn't. He wasn't impaired. We can see that by his reaction to Ruth later that night. Contrast that with Lot and the creation of Ruth's people, the Moabites. A uh, disturbing tale in the scripture in which after Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his two daughters are in a cave. They believe, they do not believe that God is their provider. So they believe that they will have no other husbands. So they get their, they get their father drunk and they take advantage of him and they have a child. And from, and that child's name was Moab, which the Moabites, Ruth's people come from. You see, Ruth does not get him drunk to take advantage of him in order to get him to do something that he would not otherwise be inclined to do. They believe that they will, um, um, once again, that's the creation of the Moabites. Verse 9, verse 9, as I read it this week, it stopped me in my tracks because of what I talked about last week. Um, verse 9 and chapter 2, verse 12 are verses very similar. They're about wings and redeemers. Boaz is startled awake. Having his feet uncovered, um, he may have been cold. Some traditions believe that he may have thought that there was a demon at his feet, but the scripture does not hint at that at all. In verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz had said to Ruth that she had come to the land and that God had spread his wings over her. Once again, a beautiful metaphor of a mother hen guarding her chicks. In verse 9, Ruth asked Boaz to spread his wings over her. It's a great parallel. The word for wing, 
wings is the same in both verses. It can be translated in different ways, and it's a, it's a really fun kind of play on words because it also means the wings of your cloak, of your garment. So his feet's uncovered, and she's saying for him to spread his wings over her. So in, in essence, what she's saying is that you are saying, I came to this country, and I am under God's protection and care, but I also want to be under your protection and care as your wife because he says, for you are a redeemer. Next week, I'm going to talk about all the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer, and you are going to be amazed at how much they parallel Jesus Christ for us. Jesus Christ, who said to Jerusalem, 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 you you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Ruth's request is very straightforward, that she is past her time of mourning. She is ready to be married. She wants to be married to him and that he could redeem Naomi. Boaz, though, will not do so. He will not do so in a deceitful way. He knows of a redeemer who's closer than him. In verses 10 through 13, we have Boaz's true feelings towards Ruth. I like talking about last week. We didn't know up to that point what he felt. We do know now. He tells her in verse 10 that this kindness that you've shown me is greater than the kindness you showed to Naomi. That's what that means. The, this kindness is greater than the first. He's, he's referring back to his former statement towards her about the kindness she showed to her mother-in-law. He, he doesn't take her as a victim. He sees her as somebody out of his league. By the way, men, all of us should feel this way towards our wives. Um, And he's so impressed. He's like, you could have went for any of these younger guys, any of these better looking guys, whether rich or poor, but you've chosen me. He says, it's true, I'm a redeemer, but there's one closer than me. And he says, and if he will marry you, good. Good for her, not good for Boaz. I think you can read that in there. I don't think that's a stretch at all, that Boaz would have been heartbroken. He said the kindness that she was doing to him, considering him, was greater than what she did for Naomi. So for him to say, but for your good, And for integrity's sake, I'm willing to set my own feelings aside. That's a person who loves God more than all others. That if he didn't have Ruth in his life, he still would be complete, even though he loves her with such a fierce and desperate love. This truly is one of the greatest love stories. So much better than those um, where they cheat and deceive others. And they say the heart wants what the heart wants, but the heart is deceitful above all things. The sinful nature makes us believe that we are chasing life when all we are following is death. Boaz is able to put his faith over his feelings. That is why the third thing that they will not do for love's sake is deal falsely. Verses 11 through 18. When we read uh, 12 and 13, let me read that again for you today. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you and lie down, um, um, redeem you, lie down until the morning. We read in verses 12 and 13, we are tempted to ask Boaz, why doesn't he just marry Ruth and redeem her anyway? and redeem the property of Naomi. Why consult this other guy? It's not like he didn't already know the situation that Naomi was in. In chapter 1, when they go back to Bethlehem, the city is abuzz. It it goes, I mean, like a person would be forgiven thinking, okay, he, he already knows. Why are you worried about this? 
You know why? Because somebody else's disobedience does not excuse your disobedience. You can never go to God and say, hey, God, I know I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z, but did you know Bill across the street, he's doing so much worse? We become experts at that when we come to our sin, justifying our own sin. Look at somebody else. We can always point to somebody though, right? Hitler could have been like, well, you know, Mussolini was pretty bad too. But that's not our standard. Our standard is the Lord. Somebody else's disobedience doesn't excuse our disobedience. I see a lot of parents here and they're like, yeah, can't wait to tell my kids this. All right. (laughs) When they're like, well, well, Timmy is doing this. Um, Our disobedience does not cover up somebody else's disobedience. For this section, I like to contrast it with the entire beginning of Jacob's life. Jacob, who would be called Israel. Jacob's story for the first part could have been titled, I would do anything for love, period, end of sentence. I will just go to any length whatsoever for love. It's important to understand that love isn't just restricted to someone that we are romantically interested in. It can be, it can be the love for a birthright and a blessing like J- Jacob had. He, he would deal falsely with his brother and with his father for those things. Then in turn, when, when, in, when his uh, uncle Laban saw that he loved Rachel so much, Laban deals with him falsely. Jacob worked for 14 years for that love. Leah, his first wife, loves Jacob, produces son after son, saying, now my husband will love me, now my husband will love me. And then she finally has Judah, where Naomi's people come from, which means I will praise the Lord. Timothy Keller once again said, the functional cause of our discontent is that our loves are out of order. You love the people in your life better when you love Jesus more. When you love Jesus more, it frees you up to agape. That's the Greek word that we see most often for love in the New Testament. It's the selfless love. It's a love, frankly, you can't do on your own. It's kind of nonsense to preach to the world you should agape your spouse because they can't do it. I can't do it on my own. I need the Holy Spirit. I need his help every single day. I need his help to agape not just my wife, but people in my life. You know, sometimes like, especially like when you're sick or you're having a hard time, it's hard to agape the people in your life. It's much easier to take your frustration out on some poor person who's taking three seconds too long to get your coffee at the local, at the local coffee shop. But if I'm going to live as Christ wants me to live and to love the people he wants me to love, I need to love him at such a point to where it's not all about me. In verse 11, Boaz calls her a worthy woman. Hopefully you are wondering, is this the same word that describes Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1? Because yes, it is. Boaz is protective of her reputation and will do whatever he can to preserve it. So, so that, uh, because he does not allow gossip about what happened that night. So it's weird that over, over several thousand years later, people are still trying to gossip about what happened that night. That word is used, the word for worthy, is used many other places in the scripture. He calls her a worthy woman. It's used for the Proverbs 31 woman, and it's also used for David's mighty men. We tell young men and young men and young women to make a list of their spouse that they'll want someday. This is something that when I was going to youth group, we'd do this every camp. Make your list of what you want in a spouse, and we were to make it really detailed. You know, one day, you know, my wife is going to be, you know, we were supposed to like put like physical characteristics, which is pretty shallow, by the way. I'm just going to say that. And you're supposed to say all these other things, and you're like, okay, we're looking for somebody who matches the list. 
you know, that's fine. You should, you should decide, you know, what your worth is to, to choose a godly spouse. But you should also look to make yourself a person who is valorous, a person of valor who is worthy, so that when you come to a relationship, you have something to offer. I remember people saying, you know, pray for me that I find a, a good wife. I'm like, why don't you be, why don't you make yourself into a good husband who can bring something to the relationship instead of being a vampire that would just drain the other person dry? Person didn't like that as much as, you know, some other flowery things I could have said. But they actually, they got it and they liked it. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to. And I was like, good for you, man. That's, that's awesome. Um, and vice versa. You know, some people, it's like going into any relationship, friendship, romantic relationship, if our idea is what can I get out of this, that's the wrong attitude to have. It's how, should I, how can I bless? How can I bless? Are you, you, church, for instance, some people come to church and they're like, um, they have their checklist of things that they want, like they're going to McDonald's, you know, and it's my way right away, or is that Burger King, whatever. Um, and they're like, okay, I want, I want this, I want this. Instead of coming to a church and like, what can I give to this church? How can I, how can I enrich this church? I don't want to call anybody out, but there are people, you had, God brought you into our church, and I'm so grateful for it. It was a blessing to come into our church, um, the, the way that God had brought that about. One thing that Ruth and Boaz do not do to the people in their life, even including this relative who should have already done the right thing but hadn't done the right thing, is they won't use them like a ladder to get what they want. There's a line in Shakespeare's Caesar that haunts me now and again. It haunts me every time I hear a story of somebody who uses somebody else like a ladder. They don't treat them like a human being who's made in the image of God, but just something to get what they want. George Bernard Shaw said that there are two great tragedies in life. One is to not get your heart's desire, and the other is to, is to get it. The line in Shakespeare that always affects me so is this. It is one of the conspirators talking himself into killing his friend. He says, But tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face, but when he, but when, when he once attains the utmost rung, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. That's the person who uses the people in their life to get what they want, and they don't care what happens. As soon as they get to where they're at, they, they, they have that attitude. They throw them away. I thought about this as I was, I was developing this sermon this week, and I came across a story of a woman who led a mega church. Now, she had really bad theology, actually. She was a bit of a cult. Um, in fact, she, she didn't believe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were co-equal with, with God the Father. So that right there should have been like, bing! Um, huge mega church. They were really hardcore about, you know, no divorce for any reason. And, um, you know, before I get into that, you, we know how disgusting it is when some guy... Um, he's married, him and his wife build a company, and once they get to a certain, a certain spot, he trades her in for the younger model. So she built this huge, huge church, huge corporation, and uh, no divorce, no divorce, and then this like 30-year-old male model starts attending the church, and then she's like, sometimes God allows divorce. And she trades the husband whose millions she used to make her empire in for the younger model. And it's like, that's so gross when people use people like that. person was made in the image of God, and you treat them like this? 
you know, it's amazing. Boaz and Ruth, they, 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 are, they are unwilling to do this, even though it would hurt them, even though it would hurt Boaz so badly to say to Ruth, I'm not the one. He decides what's best for her, and that's what makes him into such a great husband for her. And, may, and, and we'll read later on next week about how they are in the lineage of Christ. Boaz doesn't use Ruth. He refuses to, and that is why he won't marry her on the spot. It is why chapter 3 seems somewhat anticlimactic, but it is one of trust. Worship team, you can come up at this point. I said when I started this chapter that it is somewhat anticlimactic. They don't throw caution to the wind and get married on the spot. Boaz tells her that it's not right or proper until the other redeemer refuses. But the chapter does end with hope. Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz will settle the matter right away. There is, still, there is still trust that this will work out. There is still faith. How much more should we trust our God when he tells us that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? How much more should we not let our hearts be troubled when our bridegroom tells us that he goes to prepare a place for us and that he will return? As we get ready for our final song this morning, it's our opportunity to respond to, this, to, the, to the sermon. The three things I have here that they would not do for love, really it's about ordering our loves correctly. It's doubt. It's about having honesty over deceit because we have a trust. Here's the thing. We don't have to deceive people in our life because we trust that God truly is our provider. We trust that God truly has our best interests at heart. We trust that God truly will work things together out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Pastor named R.W. Glenn said that we are hesitant to pray thy will be done because we are secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions towards us. May that never be said of us personally, that when we come to God saying thy will be done. Finally, you can be truthful when you can trust. You can be truthful when you can trust. So the challenge today is prioritizing our loves. Um, I often do this uh, when I'm doing a class or something, and I talk about priorities. I ask people, write down right now 24 hours. Subtract from that eight hours. Not that everyone gets eight hours of sleep, but I'm being generous. Subtract time you have at work. All right, now write down how much time you spend at different activities in your life. And then after they're done with that, give me your top three. And I was like, don't show me. I just want you to look at that because that's your God. <laughs> and everyone's like, you tricked me. It's like, that's what you love. That's what you prize. Because that's what you spend the most time with. Pastor Tim Keller said that when you have nothing else occupying your mind, what you choose to think of, that's what your God is. Prioritizing our loves mean that conscience devotion towards God as highest above all things. This does not make then becoming a virtuous man or woman a work, but an act of grace by the Holy Spirit himself. As we live by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit and we develop the fruit of the Spirit. Would you please rise as we sing our final song?